O come, O come, Emmanuel. It is one of the oldest Christmas carols that we still sing today. The song was written in the 12, uh, 1200s, and, and to me that's just downright crazy. That's just out there. I can't even imagine the 1200s. It was written in Latin. It was, cries out with seven different names of Christ. And I say eight because Kim added his own version uh, today, which is great. But it's come, help us, Lord, come, Emmanuel, come, ransom the captives that are born in exile. Rod of Jesse, come, free your people from Satan's tyranny, from the depths of hell. Key of David, come, unlock the door of heaven and lock the door to misery. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Just lock that door to misery. The 1300, you know, the 1300th century or 13th century, choirs would face each other in these amazing cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like we, you know, we have every church on, we have multiple churches on every corner, Right? I mean, in, in one town that, oh, we drive up to the mountains, there's one town, there's seven different churches right in a row, sitting next to each other. It cracks me up, because that's how we are. We like division, we like to, no, 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 I don't, we worship this way. Well, the cathedrals, it was the only place to worship during that time. Hundreds of years to build. And for all the church improvements that we've made, I, I think we've kind of digressed on the buildings because, and the splitting up of the churches because, because the room itself would give you goosebumps when the people would, would worship and sing. It would, in a sense, it would almost lift you to heaven. And the choirs would, you know, one side of the choir would, would, would sing the verse and, and the other side would, would respond. It was almost like a call and response when they sang this song. It was powerful. It wasn't translated into English until 1818 by an Anglican priest named John Mason Neal. He was a brilliant Cambridge scholar, but he was very outspoken in his beliefs. He believed the church should be out doing something, not just focusing on itself, but, but going out to the people. So they, the church decided they needed to send him on a mission trip to get him out of, his hair, uh, get him out of, you know, out of their hair. You want to go out? Then go out. And they sent him to the Madeira Islands off the African coast, where he lived the rest of his life on one British pound a day. While there, he convinced the people to to build a, a school for the children. And then once the school was full, he decided, well, we need a place for the orphans because today we have modern medicine. Back then, you know, you caught something. There was a lot of orphans around, needless to say. So we built a school for the orphans. And lastly, a home for recovering prostitutes. Man, he was a great man. He did a lot for his community. He was at Mass one day and discovered this song in Latin. Vene, Vene, Emmanuel. And he was just taken by the song. He knew how important this song was, but no one else spoke Latin. So, so, you know, since the English language had become more common, he translated it into English for his congregation.
you know, we need to be reminded that these songs that we sing at Christmas didn't start at, you know, 1938 with Rudolph and the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Monkey Ward catalog, or as many of you say, the Montgomery Ward catalog. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But Christmas didn't start in America. It didn't. I know, that's news to many of you. But what's fascinating is that it didn't start in Bethlehem either. We think the start is, is, is you know, the, the first stories of Christ started in Bethlehem, but it, it started way before that, centuries before. Ever before we, you know, ever got to Matthew 1. Jesus himself said in Matthew, he wrote it down, he said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, God knew that humans would be in need of a Savior. He knew that humans, left to their own, you know, their own things, their own mind, would mess things up. I know my son, if I leave him to his own accord, he's going to mess things up, right? He's almost four. Of course, he doesn't know different things. You know, my wife went on a trip this last week, and, and she brought him back a, a little snow globe. And we debated on the snow globe on, okay, if it's glass, will it break? And uh, within 30 seconds of him having that in his hand, he dropped it. Left to his own accord, him messed things up. We are humans. We do that. Of course, some have confused the idea of knowing that we would need a Savior with and that humans are going to mess things up with God actually causing us to mess things up. I don't know where that thought came in, but, you know, like God is up there pulling the strings and and we're just uh, puppets instead of God giving us choices in this world. See, one of the things that we cannot be confused about when it comes to God, and one thing that we cannot understand is why he gave us choice to not love him. Why did he give us that choice to say, I reject you, God? We cannot understand that. We have the right to make decisions to trust him or not trust him. God knew this would be problematic, but he did it anyway. He knew that human choice was essential, being rewarded for good choices and and not rewarded for bad choices in this life with none of us getting it 100% right all the time. But God does what God does. Let's review what God did. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And the pinnacle of that creation was what? You and I. That was the pinnacle of that creation. We're the only part that God formed in his own image. Handmade us and breathed life right into us. It didn't start with us being placed in some primordial sludge over millions and millions and millions and millions, and they keep changing it. What I learned back in junior high is not the same as what they learned today when it comes to how long humans have been here. You know what I'm saying? So they keep changing it. It didn't begin with that. It began with a designer. It began at the Garden of Eden. We had everything we needed as humans in the garden, especially innocence. My son right now keeps going outside and goes, the trees are naked. 
Mom, there's another naked tree. Man, I'd love for him to keep that innocence his whole life, wouldn't you? It'd be awesome if, if more young people kept that innocence. I mean, I, uh, I heard about the bad singing at the tree lighting in New York, so I saw it on the news. So then I went back, and, and my, my TV thing records it, so I went back and looked at the Christmas tree lighting, and as soon as I started watching, I thought, I would never allow my son to watch that tree lighting with what the ladies were wearing. This is supposed to be a family program. And they're having, well, yeah, I'm not going to go there. But I'm just saying, we have lost innocence in this world. Man, to be free of shame, to be void of any danger. But the biggest danger we have is human choice. Now, that choice manifested itself in a form of a fruit-bearing tree. I would imagine that when God arrived in the, in the evenings for, for fellowship, he would remind them of the, the one rule that he had. Don't eat that fruit. Don't, don't mess with that tree. Don't go over there. It's a tree of, uh, it, it will give you a knowledge that you don't need. And once you've chosen that knowledge, you've chosen death. Because the knowledge is the knowledge of evil. Well, you know the story. Serpent comes and, and asks Eve, why don't you, you know, why do you abide in this very unfair rule? Because life is just totally unfair for you. You know, in the Garden of Eden where you have everything that you ever needed. Life is so unfair. He is keeping you from the truth. You need the truth. You need to learn about this. And you can't trust God on this one. Eve takes the bait, and so does Adam. Within minutes, they understand what happens, and, and uh, uh, they've gone against God, and evilness uh, enters into them, and, and they've lost their trust in God, and God has lost their trust, uh, his trust in them. He's the one who said, don't do it. I know what I'm talking about. I, talk to my, I wish my son would follow my directions all the time. Brandon, I know what I'm talking about. Don't do this one. I'm trying to keep you from getting hurt. You know what I'm saying? Don't jump off the couch toward the coffee table. That will hurt you. Trust me. And what does he do? Well, luckily on that one, he trusted me. But half the time he does it. You know what I'm saying? Now with firsthand knowledge of this disobedience, they became God unto themselves. Just, just like us, they came to think, no matter how much God has blessed me, no matter how much God has trusted me, it's not fair because I can't have that one right there. I deserve that. And we're seeing a lot of this in the news lately of, of people feeling like, well, we deserve this or we deserve that. Why is God doing this to me? Why, haven't, why hasn't God trusted me with this decision? Why would he even deny me this? So they gave away the peaceful contentment of trusting and obeying God. Adam and Eve did what we all do every day. They allowed themselves to feel for hours and hours and days and days of this unchecked discontentment 
of not being satisfied with what God has given us, not being satisfied of, of where we're at, and we're laser-focused on what we cannot have, and not believing that if God said this will hurt us, that it will hurt us. What is interesting is when we look at this story, they only ate from the tree once. We're far more guilty of returning to the tree over and over and over again, aren't we? Now, they didn't really have a choice because God kicked them out of Eden. But you see what I'm saying? All of us dream for, you know, dream for happy, healthy lives. We want, we want all this. But there's an Eve in us, the Adam in us, that reaches out for that poison. Why do we choose evil over the goodness, when we know what we're going to get is sorrow, why do we go down that path? Why didn't yesterday's pain stop us from going down the same path for today's pain? I don't know. Why don't we trust in the, in the God who gives us good gifts? He provides for us and spare us from the bad stuff. If we allowed God's restrictions to be our instructions, we would still be living in Eden today, wouldn't we? You know, I love watching the History Channel, but one thing I cannot stand is these annoying, inaccurate Bible stories that they have on the History Channel. And, you know, with scholars that, that no one has ever heard of, Wax eloquent, you know, quoting scriptures, and, and one show was actually talking about the Garden of Eden, and the, and the scholar kept talking about the tree of knowledge, and, uh, you know, and that may sound like no big deal, but to me, words are important, especially when it comes to the Bible. It wasn't the tree of knowledge. That would imply that God doesn't want man and, and woman to taste knowledge. That's ridiculous. What was the tree? It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They left off the good and evil part. They just, you know, they just put it out there, well, God doesn't want you to have knowledge. No, God didn't want you to have knowledge of good and evil. He wanted you to keep that innocence. There's children in here. Well, I guess they're, they're all gone. Everybody else is old enough here. When the Bible says that Abraham knew Sarah, it doesn't mean he read books about Sarah. He went to school and got a master's degree in all things of Sarah. He knew Sarah. What does that mean? Well, you know. To know good and evil would mean to take a bite of it. To know good and evil would mean to to know the flavor, to know the texture, the smell, the taste of evil. This is why God prohibited them from taking of it. Because they were so innocent. They had no evil in them. They didn't wear clothes in public because it was no big deal. It was innocent. Now we see somebody naked, we're like, oh, it's 911, there's somebody walking around, yeah, come get this guy. For some reason, it's always a guy. <laughs> Not that I want the other either. Don't, don't, <laughs> oh, okay, I need to get back to my notes. Okay. They were innocent, they were like children. Like little Brandon, when he, gets, when he gets out of his bath, he's running around with no clothes on. I'm like, come here, you need your clothes on. To him, it's no big deal. No sense of anything 
of wrong or different. See, wrong didn't exist before they ate of the tree, at least in their mind. But God knew that evil already existed, and he was trying to protect them from that. And as a loving father would try to spare his children from the pain of a person who takes a big bite out of the apple. It wasn't knowledge that God was trying to protect them from. History Channel knowledge, you know, from the History Channel heretic. The serpent convinced Eve that she needed and wanted and lusted after the thing that she didn't have and desired for that, for that thing. And, and you know, what it, what it ended up was sin that she tasted. He convinced Eve that he was holding back on the fun of life. He's God. He doesn't know about sin. Ask me. I can help you with that, the serpent was pretty much saying. And they chose not to believe the Father's word on this. And, and any, of the fathers, uh, any of the fathers in the room that has a daughter, you would understand. Uh, you know, you're kind of like, man, I want to protect my daughter from this world. I want to protect my, my daughter from, from the guys out there who are predators, from the guys who out there are going to treat them not well and not treat them like a queen that they should be treated like. God came to visit them in, in the garden as he did every evening, but Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. They were hiding. They were experiencing some new and raw emotions, regret and shame and vulnerability and sorrow and fear. In fact, let's look in Genesis 3. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves. That would be really humorous if it wasn't so sad. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You may ask, why is that humorous? Well, if you rub fig fig, uh, leaves on your skin, you know what happens? You break out in a rash. Yeah, a rash. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the, the day. As, you know, a sound that, that yesterday was, was exciting for them because God was with them. But today they're hiding. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is the first of hundreds of questions that are in the Bible. Where are you? Where have you gone? Why are you hiding my son? Why are you hiding my daughter? The father always comes looking for his children, even, they're, even when they're disobedient. Isn't that a great thing about God? He always comes looking for his children. He doesn't leave you out there. See, our faith is the only faith where, where God actually comes and looks for us compared to, to the, you know, the fear of every other of faith of, I don't want to offend. And our God's saying, Even though you've offended me, I'm still coming to you because I want to have that relationship. Our God calls out, where are you? Where are you? It was a great preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, that said that no matter what the day holds, that no matter what the season or how the season unfolds, God says, I have come to you wherever you may be. I will look for you until my eyes see you. I will follow you till my hands of my mercy reach you, and then I will hold you in my heart. That's who God is. 
God says, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, he, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from that tree and I ate it. I mean, Adam, I mean, come on. You should have eaten from the tree of man up. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman answered, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now for Adam and Eve, there were consequences. They were both kept away from from both these trees. There was two trees in the garden. For their own good, they were kept away from it, banished from the garden. The the tree of life and the the tree tree of knowledge of good and evil, along with the forbidden fruit and and so forth. They were infected with sin. He didn't want them to live in that state forever, so he kept them away from the tree of life. Smart God. Banished them from the garden. It says in verse 21, Then the, uh, the Lord God made garments for skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Very nice of, of our father. Not so nice for the animals he had to kill to clothe them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Eternal life has now been taken away from the humans, and that's a good thing because we would not want to live in eternity with our sin, would we? I mean, with the sin and and regret and sorrow, what might have been, what could have been. Why did I mess up here? Why did I make this choice? I don't want to live with that the rest of my life. How about you? Absolutely not. If there was no antidote, if there was no rescue, if there was no Savior, then what would happen? That's why God banished them. God holds them accountable, and he holds uh, the devil accountable also in Genesis 3.15. It is really the first promise of the Bible. It says it went to Adam, it went to Eve, and it went to the serpent, all three of them. And the promise is this. One day, Eve's offspring would be wounded by the serpent and would turn around and crush the serpent's head. A human would deal the fatal blow to all the devil had schemed since the beginning of time. That was the promise. That is the beginning of the Christmas story. It's not in Matthew and Luke, but at the very beginning of of human existence, right then and there, right outside the Garden of Eden, the invisible barriers have gone up between husband and wife, between humans and God. As human you know, rebellion created human pain. Oh man, how I wish my rebellion didn't cause pain in my life, right? We all have that wish. But right there, as regrets ruled the day, as fear of what lay right outside of the garden, the safest place on earth is right there, and I cannot go back there. Right then and there is where the Christmas story started. 
of a promise made to Adam and Eve and Satan on the cruel soil right there. The first seeds of Christmas are sown with an Advent promise and an Advent longing for a Savior. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Of a man, a descendant of Eve, that would would be struck with poison that had struck Adam and Eve. And he would take all the venom of sin. He would take all the, the venom of misery and all the things that come along with sin, and then he would turn and crush the serpent's head. That is the first promise. And that will be the last promise fulfilled in the book of Revelations. This was not fulfilled in Eve's lifetime. She moves out of the garden in a new normal with Adam, trying to figure out how they were going to do this, a new relationship between them, a, a new level of work. Her son, is, uh, Cain, is born, and she's all happy, and then Abel was born, and then they discovered what it is to like, you know, what it's like to raise very different children, one who serves God honorably and one who did not, another son that was angry. Abe doesn't uh, sur- you know, survive Cain's rage. The parents are left to survive and and mourn both sons. One is dead and the other is driven away and gone. They're left with the stage of perpetual advent like many of us. Something happens and we're stricken by the the devil's schemes against us. Like many of us who who grieve now over things that, that may have happened 10 or 20 years ago. Friends, this is Advent We're waiting and we're longing for for Jesus to make things right. Right for us and right for this world. O come, O come, Emmanuel. The word Advent is a simple word. It comes from Latin. It means the arriving. It also implies waiting. We're waiting the arrival of the Redeemer. Because of who He is and what he brings. He is our only hope in this world. If we rely on anything else, it will be taken from us. He is the only hope. As much as I love Christmas lights inside and and outside and all the decorations and, and some of the shopping, but I do love all the food. Do love that. Gathering with those that we love, seeing children in the magic of Christmas and the gifts that we give them and seeing Brandon open up his gift, all that Pales to the fact that a descendant of Eve would be stricken by the servant, by Satan himself. That part's already happened. And he will turn, and then that day he will crush the head of the enemy and destroy the enemy of God. Amen? All because a Savior has come. All because a Redeemer has come. All because He is leading the heavenly host. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father has come to earth. The Advent. So as wonderful it is to think of Jesus as as a baby. I mean, and that's pretty awesome. I mean, we celebrate that this time of the year. But the baby Jesus is not the point. The point is the descendant of Eve has come on a mission that will save those on this planet, and we are a part of that if we are a Christian. You are a part of the story. We forget about that, don't we? You are a part of the story. 
the Christmas story, and you didn't even realize it. You get to place yourself in the story. How cool is that? You get to play a role in the coming of Christ to those around you, in your job, in your school, in your volunteering, wherever you go, you get to be a part of the story that brings Christ to those. So don't buy into the holiday, you know, anger or impatience. Can't believe that. They just like take up the whole aisle as I'm shopping. I've never said that. You know, don't get caught up and, you know, it's all about shopping, all about Black Friday. And I can't believe they're doing it on Thursday, but I really need that. And that's really, oh, I got a good deal. Call it Pumpkin Thursday. Whatever they're telling us, whatever the, the, you know, all the commercials are saying to us, just step aside and look at the world around you. This is all you get unless you have Jesus Christ. This is all they get. So no wonder why they're happy about all these sales. Unless they have God in their life, that is it. We are longing for a Savior. Longing for a Savior. We wait for Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to you. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to you. Isn't that exciting? I mean, I almost imagine back to, you know, the 1200s and 1300s, uh, the 13th century and all that kind of stuff of, of the, the two choirs going back and forth. Rejoice, rejoice, and sing in the verses. Are you crying out to God this year? You know, we have all our traditions. We have all these things that we do. My wife and I have certain traditions that, <clears throat> that we've started with Brandon. We're going to continue every year. But one of the things that I think we often forget about as a society, as a Christian society, is saying, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rejoice, rejoice, God has come to us. Has God come to you this year? That's, only you can answer that question. Has God come to you? And if he's come to you, what has he said to you? I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I'm sure that's part of it. What has he said to you? What is God's expectations for you this season? What is God's expectations for you as a Christian living in this evil world that has not changed? My mom and I were talking about different things that they're, you know, teaching in schools nowadays and all this kind of stuff. And, and we, we kind of got uh, talking about how society really has not changed from eons. The same problems that they had back then are the same problems that we have today. Nothing is new under the sun, said Solomon, right? Nothing is new. But we're like, I can't believe it. Has God come to you? If he hasn't, then scream out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. If he has, rejoice, rejoice, because Emmanuel is with you. You have to decide which one you need to call out today. As we get ready to to sing this song again, think about that. And then think about it this afternoon. As you're all full from lunch, hopefully, you're all lounging around or you're busy doing your stuff, think about, has God come to you? And if he has, what has he said to you? You should be a light to this world. And are you that light this year? Hmm.
Let's stand up and pray as the worship team comes up. Lord, we, we do say, O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's many of us here today who need you. There's many of us here today who, who need you in a specific situation in our life. Something has gone awry and we need your help. Something has happened within our family or within our job, within our marriage, within friendships. And we need you in the middle. We need you right there and we pray that you do that. And for the others of us, we, we see you in our everyday life and we want to rejoice and we want to rejoice so much that others see us out there in this world rejoicing. That it's not just about a Christmas tree. It's not just about the lights on the house and the decorations that we have. That it's about you as our Savior. You as our Emmanuel. We love you so much, Lord. In your name, amen.